This episode is brought to you by Indie Insights. Indie Insights is our bi-weekly newsletter and love note to the film industry, movies, and the creatives that make them, not to mention you, our esteemed listeners. Inside, you'll find curated industry trends, articles, exclusive commentary, and underappreciated films from filmmakers like you worldwide. And the best part is that it is completely free. So join today at www.bonsai.film. It takes just a few seconds. And once you sign up, you'll get the very next newsletter on Friday morning. It's that simple. Go to www.bonsai.film to get Indie Insights, our biweekly newsletter, and join a network of film creatives just like yourself. And don't worry, we'll never sell your information or spam you with a bunch of nonsense emails, just the bi-weekly film industry goodness you need. And if you ever tire of Indie Insights, simply unsubscribe. No gimmicks, no games. So go to www.bonsai.film to get Indie Insights for free. listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps creatives in film get where they're going faster by sharing the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives across the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. Hey, I'm Tiffany Murray. I'm the writer and director of Southbridge Podcast. Um, I, you might know me from my camera assistant work on large TV shows such as Miracle Workers, uh, season three now streaming on HBO. Um, and I'm working on, I'm in post for a feature and writing my own feature uh, as we speak. Tiffany Murray, welcome to the Make It Podcast. Happy to be here. Seriously happy to have you. And I will just warn you in this audience right now, there is no possible way that we will work our way through all of the notes, the copious notes and research I have uh, in front of me. I think we might get to about 65, maybe 70% if we're lucky, if we're efficient. Uh, although there's no need to be efficient, I think <laughs> I think with creative and fun people, long answers are better a lot of times. Um, so I'd love to start with sort of the obvious, which is how did you and Amy Kirsten meet? How did Amy and I meet? <laughs> sure. Um, well, we actually so Amy was um, wearing a bunch of hats on a web series called Control at Delete. It's a workplace comedy set in an abortion clinic. Um, and I was brought on season two to uh, be the cinematographer. And we met in a prep uh, meeting and just connected right off the bat. So from there, we were like, okay, let's work together on something else and something <laughs> else. And then I dragged her onto this uh, and I'm very grateful for her. <laughs> what role did, did your parents play in giving you the, the confidence to perform in this business? 
Um, I, I think my parents definitely instilled a lot of, um, work hard mentality. You know, it wasn't, it, we were a family of five living on two teacher salaries. And so it was like, if you want something, you have to go out and work for it. Mm. Um, and that, you know, instilled a lot of just like, okay, well, how do I get there? How do I do this thing? You know, so there's a lot of like independence that comes from that as well. Um, so yeah, I think I, I've never like thought about that connection in that way, but, um, yeah. Yeah. And I think it comes through Tiff with you, uh, especially like, you know, you're carrying giant rigs around, uh, you aren't afraid to travel. Uh, you've mm-hmm. been not just to LA and in New York where you live now, but you know, you've, you've, you know, been to Thailand, you've been all over the place and taking that ambition and just sort of channeled it in film. It feels like that yeah. ambition and toughness they instilled in you, you could have put that anywhere and, and you would be, you know, just fine. Um, as many people know, and you probably know, uh, Bonsai Creative branding and marketing firm for independent film, but we also have this podcast. We are partnership as well. Um, my co-founder, Nick, makes my life easy. We complement each other well. Uh, you know, he's more technical. Uh, I'm more emotional, maybe something like that. Th- those two play together well. So I'm curious with you two, I understand why you would partner and how that mitigates risk a little bit. But uh, when you guys collaborate on projects, you know, who is the most headstrong and and how do you resolve your creative differences? (laughs) I think it depends on the project for sure. Like there's always one of us that's a little bit like obviously Southbridge was my thing. And I like brought Amy in to be like, Mm -hmm. Hey, you got to tell me if this is complete awful dialogue (laughs) because I'm in my head and I just don't know. And I, I respect Amy's opinion so much. And she's also a, a brilliant writer. And so to just have her be like, I don't know if this is a tech thing that I just don't understand, but that makes no sense. I'm like, Oh, got it. Cool. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. yeah and I think it's important that you play different roles within a project. Um, we did a feature film uh, called adult interference that, know, is doing really well. It's, it's just got picked up by Paramount plus it's on Xfinity stream now. And yeah, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's the gift that keeps on giving, I suppose, but it wasn't always uh, easy. And we had two female directors. It was a mostly female made film. And that is what really surprises people about it is that, you know, you want to sort of write it off as like a, a male driven, uh, sort of 80s comedy raunch fest, but women did that. Yeah. And, and that, and, and so it was this really cool surprise, but I did notice that because we had a, two female directors that, that posed a bit of a problem and, and a hierarchy was created almost immediately where one of them was like the dominant, I'm directing this film and I will accept feedback from you. Mm-hmm. Um, but like she, there was one that was just clearly more dominant, not, not bad or good. I'm not saying bad or good. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying a problem. I'm not saying anything like that. But you know, when I think fell into that, yeah. Like when I think about adult interference, I think, I feel like, you know, Jackie Phillips directed that movie Mm -hmm. and I feel like Stephanie black, you know, acted and wrote that movie and that's probably where they should have stayed. Mm. But instead, they wanted to co-direct to help, to sure. lean on each other, and it didn't really work that way perfectly. Yeah. You know, 
Yeah, I think I think for Amy and I on the short after the march, it was kind of like I'll take more of the like visual director sense and help produce. And then Amy is writing and like pouring herself over the dialogue. And then we're coming together on this, like, okay, what, what is the overall feeling we want? And then I take that to my team and say, okay, this is what the feeling is like. So how do we translate that to visual? So how did the idea for Southbridge come about and what's your, short-term and long-term plan for the IP, the intellectual property? Sure. Um, So the initial idea for Southbridge came from um, production on a short film I directed and wrote called I'll Be Here as a, like a post-apocalyptic one-man limited dialogue kind of thing. And I was like, this is really fun. I want to explore this more. What if he's... He thinks he's in this abandoned place, but it's not actually abandoned. What if there's like things going on that are like affecting him? It was really wonderful, by the way. I, I encourage everybody to watch it on Amazon Prime. It is two ninety nine to watch it in HD, one ninety nine in standard. But why do that? Watch it for the two ninety nine because you're going to lose that three dollars in a really silly way, almost guaranteed within the next twenty four hours. <laughs> so you might as well spend it. <laughs> Oh, it's less than a coffee. Yeah, sure. You might as well spend it on Tiffany and Amanda Young, friend of the podcast, and, and, and Henry Haggard and a few others. Amazing work. Anyway, continue. Yeah. I just wanted to pitch your movie for you. I appreciate it. Yep. Um, yeah, so I was really excited about that project and wanted to explore where that could take me. And so I spent the next, oh gosh, four years kind of like toying with these ideas about like, a world that looks abandoned, but maybe is manufactured from the outside kind of Truman show esque style. Um, and I, you know, there's so much research and different TV shows and movies that had similar concepts to find where I felt like this could fit in and what yeah. I had to say that was different than all of those. Um, and so for me that kind of like filtered into, well, I have this incredible insight with, 10 years of experience in film production. What if this is a comment on the entertainment industry and how the entertainment industry can, could possibly be affecting our subconscious in ways that we don't necessarily realize. Mm -hmm. Um, And so bringing this like dystopian world with that and kind of intermeshing those things, Southridge kind of appeared. I've listened, I listened to all the episodes. You uh, do provide some comedy and there's, there's a lot of comedy actually. And, and Thank a lot you. of drama. So, um, it's not all, man, these are rough times and I'm going to listen to this and I'm going to be even lower. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not that kind of, kind of show you guys put it out on YouTube as well. Correct. Or no. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So we're releasing anywhere you listen to podcasts and on YouTube. Uh, eventually we'll have the full eight episodes in one video too. So if you just want to binge all the way through it, you can do that. Do you, do, was there talk about just leading with YouTube since the visuals and the Foley go together so well? We, so essentially this idea started as a TV series pitch. Mm-hmm. And then I quickly realized no one's going to give no name Tiffany Murray, like 10 million an episode 
to make a crazy dystopian sci-fi. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, well, what can I do? And while I was like thinking about how would I pitch this, who could I connect with to get me into the room at Hulu or whatever, um, the pandemic happened. And I was like, well, I need to create something. And I have all of this time to think about this big giant idea. Mm-hmm. What if we just make it without visuals? <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. And just like go straight in podcasts. And I I do think like, I mean, this, it would be so much more elevated if we could incorporate visuals and all of the unspoken things that we could do would just like make this show so much more incredible. Um, But but Tiffany, if, if the show takes off, your first goal becomes your next goal, right? Like, Mm -hmm. is the idea to take the IP right back into Hulu and say, here's here's your proof of concept we have you know five seasons of this show that has this many listens and downloads mm-hmm. yeah i mean that's that's kind of the the goal is that we can prove that there's a following with this and that people mm-hmm. are interested in knowing more um and i've also i've written the pilot for the tv series that i'm really excited about it it takes a different character's point of view of the whole storyline that's in place <laughs> at the moment and kind of like this is what i originally wanted to do is like travel between these three worlds of mm-hmm. the dystopia the reality show and um the apocalypse right within the podcast it's a little harder to do so we dropped one of those um and just went back and forth between the show and the um apocalypse right but incorporating that third version is is definitely a goal that i think is only achievable with visuals with the visuals. Um, right. So yeah, getting into the room is a little bit easier now that we have something to show for the concept. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, Mark Jackson, wonderful producer says, don't promise prove. And yeah, this is a, a great way to, to prove, uh, Tiffany, you posted on Facebook and I thought this was fascinating that you had this new appreciation for casting directors and actors, uh, because you went through 2000 submissions for lead roles on, on, on Southbridge. Yeah. And, um, I'm curious how many people actually did audition. Cause you said you just scratched mm-hmm. the surface with the 2000, how many actually yeah. auditioned and how does a podcast audition differ from a typical one? Yeah. Um, oh gosh. I, we did, we did a round of auditions and a round of callbacks. Um, total, I think we saw 20 or 30 actors, um, for like 12 roles. Yeah. Um, it's, it was, I I just wanted to give everyone parts because there were so many people that were just outstanding (laughs) and it really just came down to how does their voice match with this voice? Yeah. You know, we have a lot of female characters that was one, like gotta have it for me. And so finding women that have a range of vocal tones, we knew Amy was going to play Brandy. And so it was like, okay, so uh, Brandy has a lot of lines with Nadine so who can we find that can play Nadine that has a different enough voice? And then going from there and kind of putting all of these puzzle pieces together. Um, it was, it was so much fun, but I, I just, I feel bad because I want to give everyone parts we had so many amazing people, even that we didn't even get to 
call in for an audition that were just, I hope I get to work with them at some point because it, it was so exciting to see so much talent. Do you think that that podcast networks, I had this thought in my head that it feels like with Spotify and Apple and we mentioned Gimlet earlier, there are so many massive players in the game. There are companies. Uh, so, for example, I'm friends with a guy named Clark who runs a company that charges $100,000 per podcast episode to produce and, but he, they do everything. They're a one-stop shop. And it, it feels like to me that these podcast networks are the new TV studios yeah. and are the new networks. What do you th- think about that? And do you see it becoming lucrative enough for CBS, NBC, ABC, Fox, the traditional networks to come in and try to take a piece or even steal that cheese? Um. Yeah, I I think there's definitely a world in which these major corporations have a hand in audio drama podcasting. Um, I I was listening to a Dax Shepard interview with, um, oh, I can't remember his name right now, but he's on a Q Code show and he was talking about, he walked into the Q Code studio and there's just like, microphones 360 around him and like oh, wow. it's like pristine and like everything's perfect and i was like oh my god that would be a dream um just i think there's a you know there's a level that you can do where you have all your actors recording on their microphone at home and then there's the tv studio level you know yeah. it's like the student f- film versus the the blockbuster yeah um, oh, yeah yeah they could both be equally good in their own realm, but there's so much growth that there's so much untapped potential right now um, that it would be really exciting to see what someone would do with a giant budget for an audio drama. Yeah. It's really interesting because I've, I listened to um, a podcast called design matters with Debbie Millman and she is sort of known as one of the OGs of podcasting along with like Mark Marin, I think, and mm-hmm. a handful of others who started like before people knew what a podcast was or even how to right. access it. And when we started our podcast to this podcast in 2018, late 2018, you know, one of the bad pieces of self-talk we had was, Oh, we're so late to the game. We're so late. What are, what are we expecting to accomplish? You know, the, this thing, this lottery has already been won. Mm-hmm. And I look at Southbridge and what you and Amy are doing. And I, and, and then I look at the, what the networks, the podcast networks are doing. And I'm thinking, I think we're still in the early stages, stages of this for sure. Yeah. I, there's, it's going to be really exciting to see how this transforms into the next stage. Um, like when, when we started writing this, it was, oh, no one else is doing this right now. And then quarantine happened and everyone started doing it. <laughs> so it, we kind of feel that same way of like, oh, now there's the market is so saturated. But, you know, our hope is that the show stands out to different people for different reasons. And, you know, we kind of appeal to a certain audience. And if people enjoy it, that's all that matters, you know. Yeah, that's right. And good, good sort of stands for itself and always rises to the top. And at the end of the day, you own the IP 
and right. you own the content and who knows how you can exploit that and how your kids, kids, kids can exploit that in the future. So yeah. once you make it, it's there, it lives, you, you manifested it. So right. that cool. is a, in, in and of itself, Tiffany. Yeah. I think the important thing to remember too, is like, it's about the process. It's about creating something and getting to work with people. And if it makes you millions and millions, great. If it doesn't, you've made this really cool thing. You have to, like, we had something to show for our time in quarantine and something we're really proud of. And I think that's the most, the biggest gift that anyone could give was like just that ability to have something that they can call their own. I feel so lucky to be surrounded by so many talented people that helped me make it happen. Speaking of working with people, you know, when you do something like this together, you either, it either is for the best or, or for the worst, meaning you can be pigeon held mm-hmm. or it can be like this brand new, you could be the next Cohen brothers or something like that. Right. So yeah. like, do you see yourself basically doing every project in the future with Amy or, or, I, or, or is there an understanding between you two that you're freelancers and you're just working together on this? I, I would love to work on everything with Amy. I mean, she's, she's such a, a creative force. Um, and I, I'm lucky just to know her. Um, <laughs> it, she has her own really exciting things happening. I've got some exciting things happening on my end. And yeah. I think it just comes down to if our schedules align and, you know, our availability is in the same spot. Like I, you know, I would love to work on her feature and I'd love her to be on my feature and, um, just go from there. So we haven't established, like we are a partnership. Um, but we've <laughs> talked about co-directing, uh, we've talked about a DP director duo, um, writing things together. It's, yeah. it's definitely in the world of conversations we've had. Yeah. It's interesting when it's casual like this, it's almost like you're dating and there's, <laughs> yeah. there's nothing on the line. And then when you make an LLC together, and then you put money into the LLC. It's like you had a child. So now right. it, you can still break up, but it's really messy. And, yeah. you know, who's going to have, who's going to own the LLC? Who's going to have custody of this money? Right. So it, 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 it kind of works like a relationship in that way. So definitely wish you two the best of luck. I think it's going to be you. incredible. Uh, this comes up a lot with creatives. And we talked about this a little bit before we actually started recording. Mm-hmm. So I want to circle back to it. You lived in Nashville for five years before you moved to LA. How did you know it was time to leave? And, oh. and, <laughs> and now you're living in New York. What, what made you leave LA? Yeah. Um, it's it, the last 10 years have been a journey for sure. Um, for Nashville, Nashville to LA, that move was, uh, inspired by wanting to know what the union TV show life was like. Um, I wanted to be on big shows. I wanted to be on stuff that people recognize, work with incredible directors and actors and just be a part of that process. And I knew that I could try to go to Atlanta. I could try to go to New York, Chicago, but going to where film and TV exploded, Hollywood, just seem like why add an extra step there? Why not yeah. just go to go to LA and just see what happens? Did anybody um, try to stop you? Passive aggressively? Even? Um, I not not uh, 
intensively. I, when I finally decided that it was mm-hmm. like, this is what I'm doing. I wasn't asking for opinions anymore. <laughs> so if someone was like, Oh really? I'd be like, yeah, mm-hmm, that's what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I, I had a long conversation with uh, one of my favorite professors at uh, MTSU since Eddie Bowen. Mm-hmm. Um, we were sitting in the Mathscom building. It was, I was like a week from graduation and we were just chatting and I asked him, did he ever regret, regret not moving to LA? And yeah. he like took a really long pause before he said, I enjoy my life right now where I am. <laughs> and I was like, there's a butt there. Um, and the more we talked about it, I, I kind of gathered this. I don't want to know what if mm-hmm. I don't want to always wonder, Oh, what if I had gone to LA? what could I have done? Who could I have met? Um, and so that's become kind of, uh, a guiding factor in a lot of my choices is like, is this something I'm re- going to regret not doing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, change is scary and moves are difficult. Um, but at the end of the day, it's your life. And, you know, it's not like you're making a permanent decision forever and ever. You can always go back to Nashville. You can always go back to LA. Um, yeah. so I said, why not? I'm young and throw my stuff in a car and drive across the country and see what happens. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's really a great outlook. It, it is because you meet a lot of people who want to do that, but they live as if they're going to not die as, as if yeah. they're going to get a second shot at this. And uh, you have to remember that the finality of your existence, it is so final. It is like, you better get it in right now. Like yeah, this is you're this here is, now, like go for it. This, this is it. Now there's a bunch of people that are in the produce where you are camp. And I respect that, mm-hmm. but then really produce, you know, right. don't say and I'm not moving to LA cause I'm producing where I am. And then you don't produce anything. Yeah. There's nothing against Nashville. I think it's a really great city. I was just curious what it would be like to go somewhere else. And I didn't want to be curious forever. And it kind of lined up with my graduating college. I like saved up money while working on a TV show in Nashville. And was like, I want to do more of that on a bigger scale. Let me head out West and see what happens. What was the catalyst to your, or behind your move to New York? Um, the exact opposite, <laughs> uh, <laughs> kind of. So, uh, I had been in LA for about four years and, um, January of 2021, I started working on a big time union show and it was the most difficult time on set that I've ever had just physically, mentally, I was just exhausted. And I think part of it is coming out of quarantine, not being used to working 16 to 18 hour days in the desert, carrying 70 pound cameras up mountains every day. Mm -hmm. It just like that really sunk in like, Oh, I think this is making it as a camera assistant. And I don't know if I want to make it as a camera assistant because I was looking at the lives of people that I was working with. And I was like, I don't know that I want that. You know, like Mm -hmm. I, I saw a lot of um, unhappiness in personal lives or, you know, like, they're rolling in the dough, but also they can't take care of themselves. They're, you know, they've fractured their foot and are working on it because they can't afford to not. Mm. Um, 
And it was just, I, I wanted more out of my life. Um, so I kind of, I made the decision after that show to stop ACing. And then after that, I was it's kind of a long-winded story, but I was uh, no, DPing, uh, DPing and co-producing a uh, feature film in Pittsburgh. Uh, so I would be on the road for at least two months doing that. And so I was like, well, what if I just put my stuff in storage? Because I had to move out of my apartment. Um, I put myself in, my stuff in storage in L.A., went on the road, lived in Pittsburgh for two months making that. And during that, I was like, okay, let me try out this DP thing, you know, like see if I can, this is my next step. It was like, I'm just going to be a DP. Um, and I love that project so much that like, that's why I helped produce it because I was like, this has to succeed. I want to see this through. Like, how can I make this happen? And so it was me, the other producer and the writer, director, lead actor. And we were just like this three person unit, uh, just pouring our souls into this movie And it was incredible, but I realized that I wanted to be in a position where I could speak up for my crew Mm -hmm. on every set that I'm ever on, but also that takes a lot out of me. Yeah. And I don't know that I can do that 24 Um, (laughs) seven. So it was like, I want to be choosy about the jobs I work on so that I can work on things that are meaningful to me and that I can have a say in, and that's not going to happen on every job. Um, so around that same time, a company that I had been freelancing with was looking for a boots on the ground person in New York to expand their production company. And so it kind of just lined up where I came on as a assistant with them, um, co-coordinating and, um, I was their lead operator. We do like, uh, VFX driving plates. It's a right. very specialized car rig situation. Mm-hmm. Um, that I had a lot of fun with and I love the company. I love, they're like my second family. Um, so to be able to work with them full time with the flexibility that if something comes up, I can take that job and the company won't, you know, burn up in flames while I'm gone. (laughs) Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm working from home, but I'm in New York to establish our, our company out here. Um, and that gives me the flexibility to write and DP and direct when I want to. Yeah, there's so much to dig in to on uh, dig into uh, with that answer. I, I have to say, I've heard a lot of these stories too from other people across industries, by the way, not just film, where you get a glimpse into the world or the place or the job that you really want, the thing you've always wanted. You get a quick glimpse mm-hmm. into it before you're ready. Before you've earned it, you get a glimpse in and mm-hmm. then you realize you can't accept how the sausage is made Yeah, as you saw it. And you have a friend that really admired this executive and, you know, this guy had worked at McKinsey and BCG and, you know, he was a mil- self-made millionaire and all this stuff. And, um, his kid's birthday had come around and, you know, he's working for him and he overhears a phone call that he's having with his wife and, I guess through the phone, you could sort of glean that he was a little bit surprised that it was his kid's birthday. And then he asked the wife, what did we get him? And there's a way to be overcritical when you hear that. Like, like it's almost immature, like, like it's childish to, to be like, Oh, I see. You don't even have time for your kid. Well, you can't have everything. You don't know the exterior situation. Yeah. You can't be, 
everything to everybody all the time. You're just a human being. But that moment was enough to drive him out of that profession. He was like, I don't think I, I don't think I want that life. I don't think I want the life where I don't, that I forget it's my kid's birthday and I don't know what I got him for the birthday. Yeah. But if you're an executive, you're traveling all the time. If you're an MBA somewhere, like you're mm-hmm. always on a plane, you're always in a cab, you're always in meetings. Everybody's depending on you. A thousand people's jobs and families depend on whether or not you can keep a business afloat. So that's kind of a more mature way to look at it. But, you know, on the surface, it's like, yeah, that really, that's really a tough one. Um, reminds me of that Alec Baldwin, Glengarry, Glenn Ross line, where it's like, Great father, go home and play with your kids. Great yeah. husband, you know, fuck you, whatever. I don't forget what the line is. There's a ton of cussing <laughs> in that. Movie, so, yeah. so it's uh, it's some it's it's something like that. But I, you mentioned your sort of transition. I am curious, um, what's the greatest challenge that you've had transitioning from being behind the camera uh, to someone who wants to write, um. And direct and produce and all those things. Right. I I think it's, man, I don't know. I'm so much happier as a person that I don't, I think that there are many hindrances now. Like before it was, I never have time to write. And when I do have time, I'm so exhausted, whether it's physically or mentally or both, that I just, I can't sit at my computer and have creative thoughts. Yeah. And now that I- That's real. That's so real, by the way. It's awful. And like, I, I hated that because I was starting to produce, we were casting Southbridge while I was on this TV show. And I just kept like getting on calls at lunch with Amy and being like, okay, let's, let's try to get Wayne Knight for this part. Let's get yeah. a hold of his managers. And like, there was a moment where we had a call with his manager and I was on set and couldn't be a part of the call oh, man. for Wayne Knight. <laughs> And so it was just like, I would so much rather Holy be at moly. home just dedicating everything I have to Southbridge yeah. than being on set with Steve Buscemi and Daniel Radcliffe. Like, <laughs> amazing people. That's, I would that's rather a be at choice. Home. Yeah, I know. It, it's, it was just something that, like, hadn't really clicked until that point. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that show to have enlightened me in that way no matter how uh, difficult it was in the time to have that realization. But um, I mean, now it's, it's just a matter of like, okay, dedicating time to writing. And if I'm tired of writing, I'm reading or I'm watching masterclasses or, you know, reading books and taking notes and just like making sure I execute the time that I do have to fulfill that part of me that, wants to be creative in these ways that I haven't been able to do in the last 10 years. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's great. And I'm rooting for you all the way. And <laughs> Thank you. I, I really do identify with being, there's, there's a block of time you need to really be creative mm-hmm. and to be excellent, to be in flow state, to, to sort of produce excellent work. And I think it's about four hours. I think you need four hours of no one interrupting you and you having zero concerns about needing to be anywhere else for four hours. And if you can schedule that in through life design somehow mm-hmm. uh, three times a week, you're going to go so much further than you would trying to squeeze in 30 minutes here, one hour there, seven days a week. 
right. you know, don't do that. Give yourself the long blocks where nobody, everyone knows not to mess with you. The internet is turned off. Your phone is on do not disturb and you're just digging in, just and, in. And, and yeah, and going at it. Uh, mm-hmm. I think this audience would kill me if I didn't dig in a little bit on the technical, which is what, what we do here. <laughs> I, and I have, you know, someone who has 10 years of camera experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is your favorite camera of choice for beginners? And then what is your favorite camera of choice? Oh, for beginners. It depends on what they have access to. I mean, <laughs> if you're like, I just want to create things. I'm in high school and what, like we have phones in our pockets now. Yep. Like there's so much storytelling. That's, it doesn't depend on technology. Just like pick up a lens and go. doesn't matter what it's attached to. Yeah. Um, I would say if you're like looking to invest in a camera to start off your career, um, I work really closely with Panasonic and I love their um, S1H, their GH5S. I have one of those in my closet right now. Um, The Panasonic makes really great cameras. And once you get through their odd menu system, their product is fantastic. These are mirrorless Um, cameras. Yeah. Yeah. So the S1H is their newer rig. That's what we shot. Um, the documentary series I did on, um, and then the GH5S is are a little bit older. They're a little bit smaller. Um, but a lot of bang for your buck. How has technology changed in the six years since, you know, you've, I guess, graduated and been working hardcore in the field. I mean, there's, it's been interesting because, when I was in college, the Alexas were in their, you know, original, like the Alexa classic was still being used on a lot of things. Yeah. And now Alexa has, or Ari has like so many different types of, of cameras that I'm just like, Oh my gosh, this all came out like within the last <laughs> six years. Like what? Well, um, red put a lot of pressure on them. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's this race to be the top now because everyone's kind of getting that same technology at the same time and figuring out how can we make something that's more appealing. So like red has the Komodo, which is Mm -hmm. super tiny and, you know, is easy to fly on drones and gimbals and, you know, pack in a suitcase and just fly wherever with versus Aries cameras, which are significantly larger. Right. But you've got, you know, you've got bonuses and, and, um, negatives with each one of those. Um, so I think it's whatever you find to be the most enjoyable for you, for me, it's Alexa. Um, I, I love their products and I think they have really great dynamic range and color. There's just something that draws me to those. I know lots of incredible DPs that only shoot on red and great. Good for them. I can't stand red. (laughs) So, and I think that comes from some trauma of my early AC days with older reds that had a lot of issues. And Mm -hmm. I just, I was like, I'm not interested in dedicating more time to learning the new cameras because I had such an awful time with their old cameras that I just, I'm out. It reminds me, or, or I think it's like a proxy to the workstation wars when I was coming up in the early 2000s producing music. And there was like this arms race to see who was going to win over the hearts and minds of producers and music between Korg, Yamaha and Roland. 
And it's really funny because I look at Ari, I look at Red, even Black Magic, and then there's the iPhone that you just mentioned, for example. Well, the proxy is here's these three battling it out. I ended up going with Korg. Like what's behind me over there is a Korg Extreme from way Mm -hmm. back in the day. It's still in perfect condition. And I went with Korg because Korg always gave you free stuff. And they just like kept, they give you free plugins. They gave me MS 20 for free. They gave me all these things for free. And I'd worked really well on a Yamaha. Yamaha is the easiest by far to use. Mm -hmm. And Roland was really in a specialized sort of use case for me, at least. Uh, Now you have Nord for live performance and things like that. But Mm -hmm. what's funny about all that is, is that what happened was the digital workstation. So right. Pro Tools, uh, you have a piano on your computer, Logic, like, Fruity yeah. Loops, Ableton, whatever you want to call it. They came in and just said, "Oh, you guys are fighting. We're going to make technology that makes you obsolete. So just relax." And right. it feels like the iPhone or some phone has mm-hmm. that potential to say, "Oh, while you guys are fighting in the camera, the big seventy-pound camera wars, uh, we're just going to make a really small device people can use in their hands." Mm-hmm. And it's going to be advanced enough to make you obsolete. I feel like it's an exact proxy. I Yeah, I, I think there definitely is, and ACs out there will kick me for saying this, but like I think there is a world in which we start seeing a lot more shot on iPhone stuff. Not to say that it's necessarily easy. I've worked on like iPhone commercials mm-hmm. and it's not super fun because you've got all of these apps and attachments and like downloading and, you know, all of these things that aren't quite figured out yet. Yeah. But you have to have like 20 of them too. That's what people don't ever mention. (laughs) No, no movie is shot on an iPhone. It's shot on iPhones. Right. With, with apps and attachments and Mm. cables and all of the things. So it's, it's not there yet, in my opinion. Um, I think there are people doing incredible things with phones. Um, but there is something to like the old vintage glass, you know, you, yeah. you get that like really nice PV, like just classic lens mm-hmm. and it's unlike anything. Like I, I pulled on a movie called soul called the river that just came out and we used a bunch of like customized lenses that Panavision um, modified for our DP. And it was so exciting to just see the potential of a classic lens being used in such unique ways. Did it change the way you pulled focus? It made it a lot harder. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That movie was a challenge. I'm really proud of it though. Like I, I've really cut my teeth as an AC on that movie and, um, Every day I was like, there's going to be at least one shot that like I'm sweating bullets while I'm at the <laughs> monitor, but it's fun. I mean, I, I like a challenge and I think that's kind of my overall like attitude towards creating is like, once I figure something out, okay, I figured it out. Let me go to the next thing. Yeah. I made a movie with limited dialogue. Let me now make a podcast with only dialogue. Yeah. You know, um, I'm always trying to see what what difficult thing I can figure out next. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You're, you're, well, we talked about it again in, in the <laughs> pre-conversation. You're, you're a badass. <laughs> Thank you're you. a tough lady and, and you like taking on challenges and, and conquering new, new worlds. Speaking of that, by the way, mm-hmm. segue man here, you were second unit director on a film <laughs> called my sisters. 
Mm-hmm. Is it true that the principal photography only lasted 24 hours? That is correct. And it's 91 minutes long? That is correct. How did you do this? What, what, is, what is happening? What am I missing here? Um, so that was a partnership uh, with uh, Adam Justice Hardy, who I met. I actually was originally producing the TV show version of Southbridge with him before he branched out into other things. Um, and he was like, I've got this crazy idea. I think you'd be a great partner in this project. I want to make a movie in 24 hours. And I was like, <laughs> I've done 48 fest before, man. Like, I don't know. And then I read the script and I met the actors and was like, all right, let's do this. So um, what's, the, what's the technical? Was it a one, was it a, was it a small cast one location no. movie or was it one location that could look like 10 locations or how did, how did we, you do it? We had, it was probably at least 12 locations all over Burbank. You moved, um, you did company moves? Yes. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, it, it, you should, you should have Adam on the podcast. This, this would be a fun one to chat with him about, but yeah. um, he was the mastermind behind the schedule. We had four different units shooting simultaneously. Uh. And then at the end of the day, we all came together for four camera overs on a big like conference table scene that kind of took, it kind of like spring was sprinkled in throughout the whole movie. So you have these different scenes with the different characters and then you cut back to this conversation at the conference table. Hmm. Um, it, it was a lot of fun though. It was, it was something unique and something I've never really seen done before. And it was really cool to be a part of and props to Adam for figuring out how to schedule everything and make it work because it was, it happened. Um, yeah. Well, well, here's here's an unfair question because obviously the hook is how it was made. Is the movie good? I enjoyed it. Okay. And like I don't I don't necessarily enjoy everything that I work on. Yeah. I enjoyed it. I mean, we got some distribution from it, um, and it was it was fun. You know, it's it's a it's a fun watch. I think the story is solid. Uh, our actors are great and maybe the quality suffered a little bit because we didn't have time to spend three hours lighting a room. Okay. But I think like, especially the main conference table scene, like we had um, a lighting team rigging that all day while we were out shooting the on location stuff. Where can um, you watch it? Oh gosh. I know it's on Amazon. Um, I think it's on iTunes. I'm not sure where else. Um, That's enough. Definitely on those Every, two. Yeah. I mean, everyone <laughs> has are, access to those two, Those are two, two right? that everybody has, right? That's so, right. Such is the world, right? Yeah. Um, I'd love to take you through some, uh, not necessarily speed round questions, but mm-hmm. uh, our, our classic bonsai group of questions yeah. here. Uh, and I will start with one that audience is probably pretty familiar with, but still has so much value, which is what are the two best pieces of advice you've received in your career so far and who did they come from? Oh gosh. I don't know specifically who they came from, but things I've learned maybe is, um, surround yourself with talented people. Hmm. Um, I think that that's so important. Like I am not a Foley artist and Southbridge has a 
ton of Foley. And I was like, I'm not going to embark on that journey. Like that's going to take so much time to learn how to even do it bad. Yeah. So I need someone that knows how to do it really well so that they can help me. Seth K's. Seth K's. Props Um, to Seth, by the way. Great Foley podcast. Great. Incredible. And it's been such a blast working with him throughout this whole process too. You know, what really Um, sucks if I can just have a a sidebar and I know you're supposed to answer the second part of the question. (laughs) I think what sucks is when somebody goes in and gives you an average or bad rating on your work because you did something really, really well. There was like yeah. a review on your podcast was like three stars. And it was like, yeah, this could really trigger somebody who, who you know, ha- fun, has yeah. an aversion to wet sounds <laughs> and like ticking. I'm like, that means he did a really good it's job. What are we, what are we talking about? You know, I, so uh, yeah. it's so frustrating. I screenshotted that and sent it to Seth and he's like, Hey, that means we did good. Like that's exactly he, right. We, that's exactly- we just had a good laugh about it. Like, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's not for everyone. I have misophonia and I understand it kind of like turned my stomach a little bit too at that moment. But at the same time, like, what are you supposed to do? Make it shitty. Right. I'm, yeah. I'm not going to just like not put a sound effect in because it might gross some people out. It's supposed to gross people out. Yeah. So, uh, Yeah. I listen, I empathize, but you know, here's the thing to hell with that person because they, they could have said the same thing and gave you five stars. See what I mean? It's always like, it's always like, (laughs) I'm going to punish you. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know why us creators do that to each other. I think it's insane. Anyway, second piece of advice. Second piece of advice. Never wonder what if, um, Mm. that came from Eddie Bowen, my professor at MTSU. I mean, it's kind of been, a way of life for me ever since yeah. we had that conversation is I don't want to, I don't want to wonder for the rest of my life if a choice would have taken me to the place that would have made me happy. And so I'm just going to keep taking chances and see what life brings. Yeah. I was talking to my good friend, Jason McConnell. He also is a reader. Mm-hmm. So he reads our scripts here at Bonsai and reviews them for us. And uh, we were talking and when we got done, you know, we were both rushing out to the next thing and I text him to tell him it was a great conversation and that we never have enough time. And then I thought about it and I said, you know what? I think those are going to be my dying words. There's never enough time. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's true. Like you don't want to be in that last moment feeling like you didn't have enough time. And if you, and wondering, man, if I did have enough time, I would have just, Right. That's a tough one. Yeah. That's a tough one to, to swallow. No uh, if you, <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you could provide filmmakers with one piece of advice, what would it be? Can I just say same as last question? <laughs> well, kind of. I mean, um, but, but this is this is from you. I guess yeah. I should I should contextualize it by saying this would be from your direct experience working in film. Yeah. Versus um, the advice you get before you go into film. Sure. I take care of yourself. Mm. You can't, you can't do everything for everyone. If you're not taking care of yourself first, uh, whether that means physically or mentally or otherwise, like there's, I think there's so many people, especially in this industry that pour their whole life into the entertainment industry in any industry, this happens where when you do that, you're sacrificing the work that you do because you're not able to perform at a hundred percent. Yeah. And if you can't do that, 
why are you wasting your time doing it? You know, like yeah. take care of yourself so that you can go and give a hundred percent when it matters. Yeah. That's really smart stuff. And uh, especially if you are working sort of crew or you're a second AD or whatever, mm-hmm. um, which creatives do you most admire and want to emulate and what do they do from a technical or skill standpoint that sets them apart? Mm. I typically say I don't have idols because I, I, it's, it's such a, it's such a like tricky, um, a tricky thing, but I, I really admire Reed Morano's work. Um, mm. I think she's just a force and such an incredible creative human, um, whether she's directing or producing or DPing, there's always like, you can tell her work just from like, those soft colored, uh, <laughs> drapes in the window. You're like, Oh, that was Reed's choice. Yeah. Um, it's, she's, I've been following her for, um, probably about eight years now. And I'm just like constantly floored by her, not only her work, but also her ability to balance her life with her family. You know, that's something that's constantly yeah. really difficult for people in the industry. And, of course you can't know a person's whole life from social media or what they put out there. But I've seen a lot of interviews with her and she's really frank about like, yeah, it's really hard. And sometimes I say no to jobs because I want to be there for my son. And I think that's, it's so important to like, no, like we need to be better at putting work second and putting ourselves and our family and the things that like produce happiness for us first and make sure that that happiness isn't only coming from work. Yeah. And we had uh, a filmmaker and actress, Jenica Schwartzman on um, a while back. And she's a huge advocate of making sets friendlier for mothers. Yeah. So that your kid can come with you to work, not just to save money on sitters, but also so they can be a part of your life. Right. And you don't have to sacrifice your career or some important job to also be there for your kids because this like disproportionately affects female creatives more than male creatives. Yeah. And, and maybe that shouldn't be, you know, like fathers are really important in kids' lives too, but it is a little bit different. Yeah. Um, but I do think I, I've, I know, you know, uh, Leslie powers, she and I are working on a project, two projects together right now. Love Leslie. Um, and she's, she's phenomenal. I'm so we, excited uh, for her. He Peter first film. I think uh, it was her first thing yeah. she did as a director. Um, she's, she's got some really exciting things coming up and uh, she's asked me to be a part of them. And one of the conversations I had was, Hey, I just came off this movie, two lives in Pittsburgh. And I want to make every set like that. Like, I don't want to go over 10 hours if possible, eight hours would be amazing. And, you know, she has a kid now too. And she's like, Oh yeah, I want to be home to put my kid to bed at night. And so that's something we're pushing for is like making set, not a miserable place. I want it to be somewhere where people come in, we have some fun, we do some cool stuff and then they go home and they have a life. Yeah. You know, that's, that's the way I want to make movies. And if I can't do that, then what's the point? I don't want people to be miserable on my sets. Yeah. Keep me posted on that. That sounds exciting. Um, you know, Leslie is somebody who's always working on something and yeah. I think she's working her way towards a project that's going to, to be like the big one 
like sort, yeah. of, sort of her magnus opus. And she has a few projects for those curious on YouTube. You can just look up Leslie Powers and subscribe to her YouTube pages there. Also, uh, her husband, Wes, is mm-hmm. a wonderful editor if you'd like to hire him. <laughs> uh, we've done that a few times. He's a really wonderful dude and humble dude uh, to, to work with. Uh, what are the biggest creative and business mistakes you see newcomers making? I think a lot of the mistakes we see other people making are things we've done ourselves. Um, (laughs) So like instantly my head goes to like, (laughs) like destroying your body for the sake of a show or a movie Mm -hmm. or a shot. You know, like I remember my first paid job in film, there's a dumb country music video and we were like doing some car chase and the lenses needed to be in the back of the truck but they mm-hmm. couldn't like fly around. And so it's like, Oh, oh I'll just hop in and hold them. And then I can help with the lens changes while we're out driving around. So I was riding in the back of this pickup truck <laughs> as we're like speeding down roads <laughs> in the middle of the night. And I'm, I think like I'm having the time of my life, like, Oh my gosh, I'm working on a music video that millions of people are going to watch. And then like we park and uh, we were finished with the driving sequences and I like sit up out of the truck and like some grip sees me is like, what the hell are you doing in there? And I was like, <laughs> I was holding the lenses <laughs> and he just shook his head at me. Like, I cannot believe you're that dumb, but like, I was just doing what needed to be done in my opinion. I didn't know right. if there was a better option. Um, I, I think it's just things like that. Like, obviously that's such a specific example, but making sure that you're making the safe decision. And Mm -hmm. if you're not sure what that safe decision is, ask, always ask questions. I work with a producer who's like, she likes to require everyone, especially her BAs to ask a question every day. You got to learn something new every day, whether it's how to tie a knot that you learned from the grips or, you know, how to clean a lens that you learned from camera department. Like just constantly ask questions because that's the only way you're going to learn. That's so funny because it's, that is the thing I did with my kids and two of them are grown now. And uh, one of them's 12, almost 13, but one way I stayed engaged in their education and, and let them know how important it was to me was as soon as I picked them up from school every day, I would say, what did you learn today? Just tell mm-hmm. me one thing you learned today. Like, just tell me it wasn't a total wash <laughs> right. where you, where you went in and like, uh, you know, just colored for 10 hours, like. colored for 10 hours <laughs> and threw your gum against the wall. Right. You know, and they became trained and used to being ready to say this was the most interesting thing that I learned today. And then here's how the universe works. You end up learning a bunch of stuff, too, that you forgot you learned when you were in school or didn't or were never taught. I mean, I went to the shittiest of high schools. Oh, (laughs) I might have you beat. (laughs) Yeah. I feel like I didn't learn. I didn't learn anything. And, And I think it was it was very telling that I did so poorly in high school and did so well in college. It was because it was the context was totally different and the approach to education was different. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I feel like it, I suffered because I, you know, you're not able to help as much as you want to help with, with things you never were taught. So, right. Uh, if, if I weren't like a curious guy, like a super uber curious person, I think I'd be in big trouble in life just based on that really yeah. poor start I had. 
I, I despised school when I was in school. Like I did. Okay. I was a mostly B's kind of kid, but school was so difficult for me. Mm-hmm. And I think later in life, I've realized like, I'm a very curious person. I love learning. I just never learned how to learn the way that makes sense for me. Yeah. You know, yeah. How, how, how do I retain knowledge? And no one kind of like let me in on the fact that everyone learns differently. And I think yeah. schools are now starting to adapt to that. But at the time it was like, I just, I suck at all things because I can't remember these facts about what happened in 1920. <laughs> like, yeah. You never really you know? were, were, were taught it. And there's a little bit of inception that that's at play in my opinion. And I talk about this from time to time, which is just that, look, somehow, some way it got put in my mind at a young age that although I love all these people I'm around in my family, my friend group, the neighborhood folks, people that work at the school, the authority figures, all that stuff, even though I respect them and love them, I didn't want to be them. And Mm -hmm. I knew that I didn't want to be them. I didn't want to live that life. I didn't want to live those struggles. And so that to an immature mind turned into why would I ever listen to anyone that lives like you? Yeah, because I don't respect that would your be choices. A, right. So, yeah. That would be a formula or a blueprint to be you. Mm-hmm. And that's terrifying to me. And, of, you know, a mature person wouldn't approach it that way. They, they understand there's so much complexity. But when you're 12 and 13 and you're like... The yeah. last thing I want to be is you. Therefore, yeah, I, I need to find external sources for my advice and for my guidance. Right. Yeah. I, I think there's pe- teachers and, and people that deal with kids are learning a lot about fundamental development mm-hmm. and how different humans learn differently and, and react to different things. And I think it's, it's becoming a place in which like all types of learners can succeed, but it's so new. And I just, I hope that it continues to grow because I think that there's so much potential that's untapped where people just never learned how to learn or never, you know, were supported enough to feel that they were smart in this one specific thing, because who cares? Cause it's just, um, you know, it's turning gears. It's like, no, you have a mechanical brain and that's super cool. You know, like people don't realize that there are different types of intelligence. And I think that's, it's so fascinating. Yeah. And just, I totally agree. And just to be clear, I certainly wasn't talking about teachers as a profession. You know, I was talking about certain teachers Mm -hmm. uh, who really did a poor job. And then, cause there are some teachers that I still love to this day that I reference all the time from high Mm -hmm. school, actually. Uh, but I was also talking about people in my own family yeah, and friend groups and adults in the neighborhood. And it's like, I'm not listening to you. You live here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I hate We're, this place. These like, people of authority in my life yeah. are not doing so great. So why should I obey them? You know? Precisely. Yeah. Precisely. And, and Tiff, this has been as much fun as I thought it was going to be. <laughs> uh, I learned a ton, speaking of learning, by the way, and I'm not surprised. And uh, I want everyone to go out and make sure that they support your work, support your dreams, support this podcast, and follow you. So can you tell everybody 
where they can find you on social media, where they can find you on the internet and maybe even see some of your work. Sure. Uh, so me personally, my Instagram is T Murray camera, uh, T Murray camera.com is my website. Uh, I'm also on Facebook and I don't use Twitter for personal uses cause I despise Twitter whole other conversation. Uh, and then for Southbridge, you can find Southbridge anywhere you listen to podcasts, including Spotify and Apple. Uh, we're also on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram um, as Southbridge Podcast. Twitter is actually Southbridge Cast because someone stole the domain. Uh, and our website is southbridgepodcast.com. That is beautiful. And please, folks, definitely go out and do that. It is going to be a worthwhile follow indeed. And Tiffany, we can end on this. I know that while you were in school, you worked many, 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 many hours at Dairy Queen <laughs> and uh, you got sick of ice cream. What did you like most about working at Dairy Queen? Can, can you give us the inside scoop? Oh, gosh. Pardon the pun. Scoop. On um, Dairy so Queen. we didn't scoop our ice cream. We uh, poured it out of the, the little... Shame, so, um, <laughs> oh gosh, what was, sorry, what was the question? I just, what did, you like most of, what did you like most about working there? And do you have any inside baseball on Dairy Queen that we might not know? Yes. Um, the thing I like most about working there, I, it was the first time that I felt like I was daunted at leading. Um, and I mean, my, the owner of the franchise where I worked, Rich Van Buskirk, was super like attentive to like, Oh, you're a leader. And I'm going to put you in that position. Even if you don't think you're ready. Breeding grass, I'm yeah. So I'm so grateful for him for that. And I've, I've told him this, uh, over the years, but, um, as far as just working at dairy queen, um, I have lots of fun stories, <laughs> just, <laughs> just customer service, crazy situations. Um, I loved also working in chill and just making, all kinds of crazy blizzards. Um, so here comes the fun fact about inside scoop. You can make any kind of blizzard or Sunday or whatever you want. You can add all sorts of stuff, but the best thing to do, if you want something super chocolatey, don't get the chocolate ice cream, mm. ask them to add cocoa fudge. It's like a darker, richer chocolate yeah. versus just the chocolate ice cream, which is like a premix. Um, so I, like my favorite, my go-to blizzard is uh, Reese's blizzard add cocoa fudge. So you have the Reese's, mm. the peanut butter, and then you have this like rich chocolate base with the vanilla ice cream. We have to end this podcast so I can get the hell out of here before it closes. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I'm bumming there's not one closer to me in New York. <laughs> so, so I can get one of those. Good, good stuff. Good stuff. And, uh, I, I look, I think there's going to be all kinds of good stuff coming uh, for Southbridge and for you in general and Amy as well. So my thanks to her. I know she had to drop off. And but but thank you for for hanging in, Tiff. And for this audience, you know where to find us. Make it podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. Uh, you can find us on social media. If you have questions for me or for Tiffany at underscore bonsai creative on Instagram and on Twitter, which Tiffany hates. And you can always go to www.bonsai.film to learn uh, anything you want to learn about the Make It podcast. Uh, so until next time, uh, take care of yourselves out there. Keep learning. As Tiffany says, learn one thing a day, ask one question and you know, have the courage because you don't want to be on your deathbed, as she says, and uh, be living with what ifs. 
All right. Tiff, I'll talk to you soon. Sounds great. Thank you so much. Anytime. Be good. Peace. Bye. Hey, gang. One more thing before you go. I want to talk to you about Indie Insights. Indie Insights is our bi-weekly newsletter and love note to the film industry, movies, and the creatives that make them, not to mention you, our esteemed listeners. Inside, you'll find curated industry trends, articles, exclusive commentary, and underappreciated films from filmmakers like you worldwide. And the best part is that it's completely free. So join today at www.bonsai.film. It just takes a few seconds, and once you sign up, you'll get the very next newsletter. It's that simple. Go to www.bonsai.film to get Indie Insights, our bi-weekly newsletter, and join a network of film creatives like yourself. And don't worry, we'll never sell your information or spam you with a bunch of nonsense emails, just the bi-weekly film industry goodness you need. And if you ever tire of Indie Insights, we hope not. But if you do, simply unsubscribe. No gimmicks, no games. So, one more time, go to www.bonsai.film to get Indie Insights for free. And thank you for listening.